inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. Let me get my microphone all situated. Today we have nine questions. And if you're new and you're wondering what in the world is happening, I answer questions from you on my YouTube channel each and every week. There's no question off limits. There's nothing that's, you know, quote unquote inappropriate or, you know, if you're scared to ask something, you know, use an anonymous YouTube uh, account and then ask it that way because we will get through as many of them as we can. Without further ado, let's jump into question number one. Question number one says, hey, Katie, in my head, I always want to do all of these things like workout, study, clean, etc. But I can't get myself to actually do anything. I don't feel like I'm depressed because I really want to accomplish these things. I just can't get myself to physically get up and do them. It's so frustrating. And then I get so mad at myself because there's no real reason that I'm not doing them. It seems like the only things that I can get myself to do are tasks that other people expect me to do or ask me to do, like go to work or do things if other people ask me to do them. I was wondering if you had any advice. Thanks for all that you do. And also, sorry if this makes no sense. I feel like it's really hard for me to explain. No, it totally makes sense. And even though I know you said that you don't feel like you're depressed, I think it is depression. I know that that might be really tricky to understand. But the thing about depression that I think is often misunderstood is that people think we hate everything or that we just don't want to do things. That's That can be the case for some people, but I've had many patients who have exactly what you have where they want to accomplish them, which almost kind of makes it worse because it's like we want to do the things and then we don't have the energy and then we feel worse about ourselves. And it's like this perpetuating cycle of just like shit talking ourselves, if that makes sense. So I'm suspicious that it's depression. And so just keep that in mind. But to offer some advice or some helpful tips on maybe how to overcome this, my goal for you would be to start smaller. I know, I don't know if anybody else feels this way, but I know that a lot of us, myself included, I feel like there's this huge to-do list each and every day, along with like, I'm supposed to drink enough water and I'm supposed to eat, get enough sleep. I'm supposed to eat healthy. I'm supposed to exercise. I'm supposed to do all my work. I'm supposed to have a social life. So I need to reach out to, you know, there's so much that it can feel like we have to do. Even like silly things. Sometimes I get frustrated with, I'm like, I have like a not, I don't really have a nighttime routine that's making it into more than it is, but like I should wash my face before I go to bed and put on this lotion. Like even that sometimes I'm like, God, could there be any more that's asked of me? right? It can feel like we have this never ending to-do list. I'm worried that you're kind of caught in that as well. And your depression, which makes it hard for you to want to do anything and end up doing nothing. And then you think you're lazy or stupid or whatever you tell yourself, which you're not. But that nasty self-talk can be pretty ruthless. Instead of having that huge list, I want you to start off with your basic needs. I talk about it usually using the term or the analogy or acronym. Wow. HALT. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I want you, my goals for you each each day are to make sure that you're in bed to get an, at least eight hours of sleep. Doesn't mean we have to fall asleep right away, but I don't want you on your phone on TikTok and stuff, but I want you to, you know, I want you at least be trying to sleep so that you can get eight hours. Then I want you to be eating well-balanced meals. Notice I didn't say healthy, unhealthy, you know, there's no food off limits, but I want you to have a protein, a vegetable or fruit and a carbohydrate in your meals and eat, you know, three to four hours, we should be having like a snack or a meal or something. Keep us going. Then I guess I'm going to stop there. I'm not even going to do the lonely component or the angry component. We're going to work on the sleep, the hunger. And I want you to also make sure you're showering every other day at the very least. If you're an everyday shower, keep that up. But those are just some of the basic things. Oh, and I do also want to add in, you know, taking medication as prescribed, like taking care of your physical health in that way. If there's anything that you're struggling with or even your mental illness, if you have any medication, make sure you're taking that. If you've done that, 10 out of 10, you have done a great job that day. And I want you to start with things like that and then slowly add in smaller things. Like maybe one day this week, I'm going to do one of my workouts. I don't know if it's 30 minutes. I don't know if it's an hour or what you dedicate to it, but maybe we try to add that in. 
um, maybe, you know, if studying, like, it sounds like that's probably going to, it's something you're going to have to do instead of feeling like you have to do it all at once. Can we break it up into smaller tasks and reward ourselves along the way? And a reward can be anything from, I get to take a break and play one of my favorite video games. I get to take a break and go for a walk. I get to take a break and talk to a friend or get on TikTok or, you know, whatever it is. Make sure that you're rewarding yourself along the way to keep you motivated and to help you feel successful. And I want you to write these things down in little to-do lists that you can check off. Make sure these to-dos are small and things that you can accomplish easily within a couple of hours. I don't want these to-do lists to be like, clean whole house, work out for, you know, work out five days a week. We want them to be things that we can check off as we go through. So we feel accomplished, motivated, and empowered to continue. Now, aside from that, the other key to this, because I do believe it comes out of depression and our nasty self-talk that's kind of caught us in this, is along with getting professional help, which I encourage you to do, I also encourage you to pay attention to how you talk to yourself and utilize some of those bridge statements I've I've discussed with you guys over the years. Meaning, if our thought is like, I'm so stupid and lazy, right? Super common. A lot of us think that way a lot. Instead of allowing that to exist in our brain and being like, I'm right. I'm so stupid and lazy. I'm so stupid and lazy. Just talking down, down, down to ourselves. Instead of allowing that to happen, can we say, oh, that thought comes in. I'm so stupid and lazy. Katie said to pay attention to this. And instead, I'm supposed to say something that's like just not quite as bad. So maybe I'm open to the belief that Katie doesn't think I'm as stupid and lazy as I think. It's possible. I'm open to at least trying. Or I'm open to trying to feel better. And I hope that I can, right? They sound maybe not positive because they're not necessarily positive, but they're definitely not as negative. And they were building a bridge into a more positive way of thinking uh, like thinking and talking to ourselves. So give those things a try. Hang in there. You're not alone. This got a lot of thumbs up for a reason because a lot of people are struggling. Um, But I really think that will get you hopefully back on track. Okay. Now there was a comment on this that says, hey, Katie, how are you? (laughs) I'm good. I'm good. Um, How are you? I hope you're doing fine. As an add-on, in my case, I can go for weeks doing what I can do and or doing what I can to do what I have to do. And then I go into random episodes of depression where I skip classes, social hangouts, and days of work at a time. And at this time, I get super depressed and kind of suicidal. How can I escape this cycle? This thing hinders my progress completely. For context, I've been depressed and bulimic since I was 11, and now I'm 24. Are you on any medication? I know not everybody's open to medication. People are really concerned about side effects and blah, blah, blah. But... I really think that 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 could stop you and get you out of the cycle. Also, what I said to the first part of this question, like that we can have these huge lists of to-dos and in depression and even in anxiety and a lot of other mental illnesses, especially um, eating disorders, we can have this like all or nothing black and white way of thinking. And it sounds like that's kind of what happens for you. You're all in doing all the things you're supposed to do, blah, 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 right? Or we're doing nothing. And that can be really, really hard because we're either on board or off board. And I really want you to try to live in the middle, meaning that for a while when you're feeling motivated, I encourage you to add like one more thing to your list. Maybe we add more socialization or maybe we add, um, you know, a little extra work at school, like if you need extra credit or something. Or, you know, we we clean, we organize a closet, you know, add in a little extra to do, but don't, don't go all in, do that little extra, make sure you recognize yourself and, uh, you know, pat yourself on the back for doing that so that we aren't going all the way until we get exhausted and then falling off. I want you to find this middle ground where we take breaks when we need to, and we feel kind of overwhelmed or like we need more sleep or like this has been really stressful. We take a break. We take, you know, a couple hours off. We go do some self-care stuff. Maybe it means we go for a walk, we pet an animal, take an extra long shower, whatever it is. We do that a little bit and then we go back into doing what we need to do. But I just don't want it to swing so drastically. And so I want you as much as possible every day to try to choose the middle. So even if the urge, if we're feeling super motivated, is like, oh, I want to do this, I'm going to do that. And I'm making this to-do list. And you're like, and it's crazily long. I want you to be like, Katie said to pump the brakes. 
make the to-do list short, something I can accomplish today, no longer than seven things. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And reward myself as I check those things off with something that feels good for me. Maybe that like a feel good is paint your nails or go get your nails done. Maybe it is take a longer shower. Maybe it means I play my favorite video game or get in my favorite app or whatever it is. How do I reward myself for those accomplishments as I move through them? And then if I've finished the seven things that I've had to do today, small items, I don't I need to do more. I don't, ex- then we're, we're swinging into that all right? And I think we kind of burn out because especially if we're struggling with depression and bulimia, we we have this urge to be like impulsive and all or nothing. And I want you to try to break out of that pattern. Is it going to be uncomfortable? You betcha. Your brain and body are so used to this in or out. I'm either restricting or I'm binging and purging. I'm either doing everything or I'm doing nothing. We can kind of get caught in this. And I want you to kind of slow that down and kind of try to find the middle. Um, Something that I do find incredibly helpful for my patients who have the, these kinds of symptoms is DBT or dialectical behavior therapy because there's this component of it that's called um, emotion regulation. And I talk about it a lot in many ways without calling it what it is, but essentially what I'm trying to get people to do is first, obviously, we build off mindfulness. So I want you to get a feeling for when this impulsive urge or this all or nothing urge comes up. How does it feel? Where do we feel it in our bodies? How do we experience it, right? Can we tap in and identify it? And then can I, once I've identified, make a choice to act in a different way? Does that make sense? Yes, it's hard. There's lots of tools. Like I even talked about HALT, which um, is kind of part of the emotion regulation because it makes us less vulnerable to our emotions. So just check in with yourself. Are you taking care of your basic needs? Are we... Do we tend to do things all or nothing? Can we find a middle? I did a little bit of this, but I didn't do all, you know, I didn't give up. I didn't go all in. Can we find those middles? And can we, I know it's going to be uncomfortable. Can we hold on and do it anyway? And then let me know because that will stop us from doing this, like doing everything super depressed and suicidal, doing everything super depressed and suicidal. I want you to get to a point where everybody has these ups and downs. I had a shitty day, felt kind of bad oh, I was more productive, feel better. And we can kind of bounce in there, but I just want to stop these extremes. And it's it takes practice. It's a new muscle, especially because, like I said, the, the background with bulimia is so closely linked to this, like all or nothing in or out, you know, restricting or binging, purging. We can be very impulsive. And I just want you to be better, work to get better at recognizing that so that we can kind of choose that middle and do our best, you know? It's not going to be perfect. It's okay if it's not. Don't think that if you mess up and you're like, oh, I, I engaged in that behavior I didn't want to, that it's all gone. Nope. Say, it's okay. I'm going to try again next time. Don't let it pull you. And then it goes into the nothing. That's what happens as we talk to ourselves and we say, it's like the diet mentality kind of. I'm doing so well. I'm following this new diet, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I ate something that I wasn't supposed to. Well, fuck it. I'm out now. And we do this like I fall off the bandwagon, right? We're doing it or we're not. And I want you to be, you know, sometimes and sometimes not. I want you just to flutter into that middle space. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. This question says, hi, Katie. I grew up with an emotionally immature parent. Oh, with emotionally immature parents who couldn't tolerate, let alone help me handle any of my emotions and instead responded with anger, the silent treatment and isolation. I'm so sorry. I was also groomed as a young teen by a much older married man. Now as an adult, I'm finally doing all the quote unquote right things. Therapy, journaling, not judging my feelings, daily exercise, meditation, healthy eating, vitamins, and so many self-help books. And they do help take the edge off of my depression and anxiety, but none of it touches that deep ache of needing someone to care for me or to take care of me for once and tell me it will all somehow be okay. 
I know that this is a byproduct of complex PTSD, and I know I'm supposed to reparent myself, soothe myself, and do inner child work myself, but it's just never enough to fix the empty ache inside. What am I missing? How are those of us with complex PTSD and without an adult partner supposed to get the love and care we need? I know how childish this sounds, but it is so lonely and exhausting to live every day with this endless emptiness inside. It's not childish. It's human nature. I do want everybody to know that it's a normal human need to have connection with others and care reciprocated, right? It's a normal human need to need attention. It's part of what makes us who we are. It's part of what makes us human, right? We need other people. We do not do well alone. Hence why when you're in prison, FYI, not that I've been to prison, but you guys know this to be true. When you're in prison, what's the worst thing they can do to you? They put you in isolation. Why? Because we're social creatures. We crave connection and communication and camaraderie for better, for worse, for like, even if we're in gangs, why do you think gangs exist? We need that camaraderie. We need that connection. It doesn't matter if it's like unhealthy, healthy, good, bad, whatever. It's part of what makes us human. So just know that that's okay. What you're needing is not childish. It's human. So I encourage you to change that wording. This is a human need. And my guess would be that the inner child work you've done hasn't quite hit the nail on the head. And I don't, this is no judgment, not judging your work and being like, oh, that's not good. No, sometimes we don't really know what child us may have truly wanted or we struggle to actually hear them. And so I would encourage you to start doing, and you might've already done some of this, but um, when I ran my inner child workshop, I talked about how it can be helpful to write in, so I'm left-handed. So adult me would write to child me with my left hand. Child me would write back in her right hand which is her non-dominant. It looked like a kid wrote it. It can help us separate out child voice, adult voice, and it can help us get into the mind or the frame of mind rather of a child. Because I think the thing that's hard when we do inner child work is often adult us with judgments, expectations, and assumptions can't get out of our own way. We're like, this feels weird. This is embarrassing or this is stupid. We judge little us. We should be over this by now. Why isn't this working, right? Versus allowing ourselves to close our eyes. Imagine that we're that child again. Consider what options you have, what resources are available to you, what you can really do to help yourself because it's not as much as we adult us thinks. How did we feel about this? What was this person saying or doing? How did that experience make us feel? Can we tap into that version of ourselves? But sometimes we forget what it was really like and it can be hard for us to truly hear from child us. Does that make sense? Because it's like adult us keeps getting in the way and being like, wait, 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 you know, but, but we could have said no. Could we? Did we feel like we could? Can you put yourself back in that place? And I only say this because I've heard this over and over from my patients and from members of our community that like, hey, I've done this inner child worker. I had a patient years ago that was like, I did this for like a year with my last therapist and I still just don't feel right. Like it didn't help anything. I still have attachment issues and try to plug people into this wound, right? And the truth about this is that it's probably because we haven't fully been able to hear child us. And that can be for a lot of reasons. And I think the dominant and non-dominant hand letter writing can be really helpful. I also think seeing photos of ourselves at that age and considering what we had available to us can be helpful. And just noticing, and this is also another way in, if you're like, I've already done all that, Katie, and it still didn't fucking work. Notice how you talk to yourself when you do this work. Because it sounds like there's still judgment here. Because you're like, you know, I know how childish this sounds. It's so lonely. I'm exhausted. Like, why isn't this over? I've been doing all the things, right? I'm doing all the right things. It's not working. We're getting frustrated. And then we can kind of like fighting with ourselves. Like, why am I not over this? Why is this still affecting me? And I want you to pump the brakes on that and think, what am I missing? Instead of why am I not over it? What am I missing? Can we be a detective and be curious about what's going on versus being judgmental? We're so quick to judge. 
I shoulda, coulda, woulda done this. Why is this not happening? This is so bad. I should, you know, I'm being so stupid. I'm, this is so foolish. We can have all this judgment and I want you to like be aware of it and instead try to change that conversation into like, what am I missing? What would child me really need me to hear? What is it I haven't offered her or him that could be healing? Right? Because for instance, I'll talk about my own because everybody can benefit from inner child work trauma or no trauma. Now, child me was, I mean, you guys know I struggle with people pleasing and a lot of people in my family are anxious and I believe that's kind of where it comes from. But the, you know, anyways, long story short, um, part of my work in the inner child kind of space was more about empowerment and feeling like I could rock the boat and be me and it would be okay. Little me didn't want to disturb anything. I hated conflict, the people pleasing, right? I hated conflict of any kind. Like if my parents would even just raise their voice at one another. I'd be like, da, 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 like I couldn't handle it. And so part of my inner child work was hearing that from little Katie being like, oh, you're really scared. Oh, you think your parents might get divorced because you're one of my close friends' parents had this nasty divorce. You're afraid it's going to turn into that and your whole family is going to blow up. Okay, what would that mean for you? Like, I know this sounds kind of silly, but like sometimes we have to really go into it. We have to consider our thought process and what was going on then and what we were really worried about. And I think for you, this loneliness or this need because you're, you know, um, you were groomed and your parents were really angry and, and like offered the silent treatment, which is like, you know, so damaging. It's like emotional neglect kind of. So it was like you had emotional abuse in your life. What did little you think about that? I have a feeling you've internalized some things. And I also have a feeling that you haven't been able to give yourself whatever it is that you really needed, which I think might be consistency and acceptance. Showing up for yourself. I know that sounds weird. People are like, how do I show up for myself? You meet yourself where you're at. You hear yourself out. You allow the feelings to be felt. It's not going to be a hundred percent, but I need you when you're feeling really shit, I need you to be able to say to yourself, you know what? It's okay to have a bad day. We're just doing the best we can. Think of how you would talk to a child if it was your child. When you have those rough days or you feel really emotionally dysregulated or you really feel lonely and isolated, what is it that you would say to the, a child feeling those things? How can we comfort you and continually and consistently show up for you? What can we do? right? Get in that frame of mind, start doing that work and then keep me posted on how it is. Cause I think it will really, really help. Sorry, you guys, Roxy was whining, but anyways, give those things a try. See if that gets us in a better direction, because sometimes I think we can get so adult about our inner child work that we actually lose sight of what our child self needed or wanted. So give yourself that opportunity and see what comes up. Okay. Now let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, could you talk more about grief in relation to trauma? I've heard that people still essentially go through the stages of grieving when healing from trauma. How important is it to grieve what could have been? Okay, so grief is a huge component of trauma and here's why. Well, there's a lot of reasons, but I'll walk you through them. So when we are traumatized, we could lose part of our childhood. We could lose part of our memory. We could lose our ability to do a certain thing. Let's say, I don't know, let's say we don't feel safe riding a train anymore because we were in a horrific train accident, okay? There, our world can get small. We can be hypervigilant. We can worry about, you know, things happening to us. So there's a lot of different things that can be taken from us or become very difficult. Or even relationships can end. People can pass away, right? sometimes death is a trauma too. All of that to say that there's a loss. And in that loss, we have to grieve. And yes, we can go through to, and I don't even like to call them like the stages of grief, because if anybody has been through, arguably all of us have, but if anybody's been through an intense grieving period, you know that it's like all over the place. Like even um, traditional grief, when my dad died, I clearly, I went through first the like the period of, I think it's denial is the first stage. I definitely went through that where I was like, no, 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 he'll be okay. You know, like it was hard for me to admit that he had passed away. I would have these like moments where I'd think like, oh, I'll call him and ask him about how to fix a lighter, you know, cause he could fix everything. So I'd have those like urges. And I still have that with my grandparents. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I got to call grandma. It's her birthday. Or, oh, I got to call grandma and talk to her. I haven't talked to her. And it, you know, like, then you're like, oh, um, 
So we can have that denial and then the anger and, you know, uh, bargaining. You know, we can have those stages, but you kind of jump around. And I spend a lot of time feeling angry. And so I say all of that to say that, like, when you're going through this grief period, don't feel like it has to go through the stages like one, two, three, four, and it like moves right along and everything goes in order and you don't go backwards. You can go from denial to anger to then bargaining the back to anger. It doesn't, I, I find personally, it doesn't, it's not so clean like that. It'd be nice if it was, but life just is never clean and organized like that. Um, but, and even when acceptance happens, I still feel angry sometimes about it. So don't feel bad. Um, all that to say that when we're traumatized, things have been taken from us and we have to grieve the loss. Like I've had a lot of patients who had a really hard time, not just acknowledging, I guess it is just grieving, but like grieving the loss of that chunk of their childhood or the ability. Um, I had a patient years and years ago at the eating disorder treatment center who'd been sexually abused as a kid and we had to grieve the loss of the fact that she didn't get to choose when that stuff happened to her. She didn't get to grow up, you know, like a quote unquote normal teen and like have her first kiss be this, this person she had a crush on or because she, you know, was playing spin the bottle. She didn't get to have those experiences. And I, we had to give space to grieve that. And so that's really where the grief comes in in relation to trauma. And like I said, it can depending on what the trauma was, it can look and feel a thousand different ways. The important thing is for you to allow yourself the space and time to feel sad about it, to feel angry about it, to want to bargain. Like, and I know bargaining sounds kind of weird, but we usually do it in relation to like, if you have a higher power or God that you pray to, you're like, you know, oh, Jesus, if, if I am like, if I pray every night for the next year, will you bring them back? Or, you know, we, we try to make these bargains with the universe as a whole, or we can bargain with um, ourselves even. Maybe if I had just been X, Y, or Z, then this wouldn't have happened. We do that a lot in trauma too. If I hadn't gone back to that house, you know, even though they were my babysitter, or even though it was family, if I hadn't let myself go down in that basement, you know, we have all these like bargainings of like, if I hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. And, and Allow yourself to be in that and acknowledge what happened and feel it. And I know it kind of goes against our urge. Our urge is like, oh, that's so uncomfortable. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to go into that space. If our brain and body want to pull us back there sometimes, it's because it needs that opportunity to process it. And that's why it's okay to like take our time experiencing and acknowledging the grief and those stages that come along with it. Um, I think it's in the last question is how important is it to grieve what could have been? I don't so much think it's grieving what could have. Well, I guess it is. I would say grieving the loss of, of, I guess what could have been there, right? We could say it that way just to keep it. Yeah. In, in line with the question, I think it's a big, it's an important piece because without it, we can keep, having, I, I feel like our trauma will be perpetuated. And here's why. Um, if we don't allow ourselves to grieve the loss, we can continue getting caught up in the cycle of anger and bargaining. And it's not that those things will go away 100% once we process through. I think that belief that it'll be like gone and it'll go away. Um, you know, unfortunately, that's not the case. It just won't be as upsetting. It can come up and we're like, oh, and then we move on, right? But I think in order to to heal and to allow ourselves to have that like unupsetting little memory or um, reminder, right? If someone in our life says something that reminds us of it, we're like, oh, I remember that. And we're able to move on and it's not completely derailing. I feel like grief is part of all trauma work because without it, it's almost like we're trying to move past the the loss and pretend it didn't exist. And I think if we don't acknowledge it, a lot of those emotions can get caught up in us, meaning like in our nervous system, in our body, in our brain, and we can feel more anxiety, more hypervigilance for a longer period of time. I really feel like grief is almost like another form of, you know, how I talk about the body shakes and like releasing all of that energy that's queued up. I feel like grief is like the emotional component of that. It's another key piece in that like release or uh, another way to get it out because otherwise it can feel like it's just caught up in our system, right? And if we don't allow ourselves to to let it go, 
I feel like grief in a lot of ways is like sadness mixed with letting it go. I think if we don't give it an opportunity to to be let go, then we'll keep holding on to it. I hope that makes sense. That's a great question. And if not, you let me know for any follow-ups. Let's move on to question number four. And this says, I was wondering if it's possible to be traumatized by something that isn't actually traumatic. Sounds like judgment already. I never had any big T traumas, but growing up, I struggled with terrible anxiety, mostly separation anxiety and social anxiety. I feel like normal experiences like going to school, birthday parties, practices, etc., were so hard for me and still are. I'm in my early 20s now that I started coping by dissociating, struggled with disordered eating, and at one point self-harm. It probably doesn't make sense to be traumatized by normal everyday things, but I feel like I never understood why normal things were so hard for me. And I knew I had no choice because I had to go to school and do things. Sorry, I hope this question makes sense. Thanks for all that you do. The important thing to remember about trauma and being traumatized is that it's not about the thing. It's not about what it is. It's about how we experienced it. Okay, I want you to hear that. Trauma is not about the thing that happened. It's about our experience of it. Meaning, I could be in those same situations, but I don't have social anxiety. I don't have separation anxiety. Therefore, I'm not traumatized. But for you, being forced to leave your family, being forced to engage in social situations was overwhelming to your system. It was terrifying and it felt very threatening. Therefore, you were traumatized because of the way you experienced those things. And so I encourage all of us out there to pay attention to the judgments we place on experiences and situations. Also, by the way, trauma always, almost always comes with shame, which is like the belief that something's wrong with us, right? We're inherently broken or wrong in some way. And you can see how that would feed into this type of thought process where we're like, you know what? It's just me. I'm making this into a big deal. Other people would be fine with this. Other people are fine with this. It's, you know, we minimize, we invalidate, and we shame ourselves. That keeps us caught in this kind of like PTSD, hypervigilance slash trauma experience. So I just want you to pay attention to our judgments because I do know also people will feel like, well, my trauma wasn't as bad as this person's. And unfortunately, there's not a limited amount of trauma to go around. It's not like pie. Like if I take a slice, I'm not taking it from you or vice versa. There's plenty. And that sucks, but I don't want you to think that just because someone will always have it worse. Someone will always have it better that doesn't make our trauma any more or less valid. Our experience is always valid. So just consider that for anybody out there who has felt like they're traumatized, but judges it, uh, you know, makes assumptions about what they should have, could have, would have, right? Anything. If you find yourself minimizing or negating that experience, just you know, maybe try to bridge statement a little bit. I'm open to the belief that what Katie said might be correct, that it's more about the experience for us, not the situation, right? Notice that because so often we're like, I was only bullied for like two years in school. It's really not that big of a deal. Some people were like sexually abused for like 10 years. Both can exist. Traumas can exist in both of those scenarios. It's not about the experience. It's about how we experienced it. Okay. I hope that that helps. And I'm trying to answer all the questions on that. Yeah. So be traumatized. Yes. Correct. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hello, Katie. My question is, can one be diagnosed with PTSD noting that complex PTSD isn't a recognized diagnosis in the DSM-5 if they quote unquote only experienced emotional neglect growing up? Yes. My understanding is that in addition to satisfying the the symptomatic criteria, you must also have feared for your safety or the safety of others to get the diagnosis. But with emotional neglect and abandonment, each instance of neglect by itself doesn't amount to the fear for one's safety. At least this was the case for me. But rather, it was the culminative and chronic nature of the neglect that has resulted in PTSD symptoms for me. Given there was no quote-unquote event per se, that caused me to fear for my life, does this mean I can't be diagnosed with PTSD, even though I have most of the listed symptoms? 
Where I live, diagnosing for insurance purposes is virtually non-existent because we pay out of pocket, but I'm sure an accurate diagnosis is still relevant for directing treatment. And I'm confused about how this works when the DSM doesn't capture every individual's case. We'll talk about this. Sorry for the lengthy question and thank you for your videos every week. It's been an amazing resource for me. Of course, I'm so glad I could be there for you. Okay, let's get into this. Now, the DSM has to exist for a reason, meaning we have to have a place to start, right? If we didn't have any diagnostic criteria, if we didn't have any symptoms to look for, how would we know bipolar disorders, bipolar disorder? How would we know maybe how to treat it? Or how could we um, run studies to find out which treatment is best? We wouldn't. So it needs to exist just like the ICD-11. They also need to exist for uh, insurance purposes. However, they're incredibly, incredibly limited. Case in point, you don't have one of the main criteria that they say for PTSD. Uh, Spoilers, a lot of people don't that you fear for your safety or the safety of others. That's a key, like vital symptom, they say, of PTSD. However, I have a huge, I, I mean, the list of patients and the amount of files I would have of people who have PTSD and don't meet that criteria would be endless. Huge amounts of people feel exactly how you feel. And that's where the DSM or the ICD-11 or whatever diagnostic manual you use falls short. Because everybody's different. And what you've experienced is what I would call a a culmination of little T's. And I don't call them little T traumas to minimize them in any way. It's the best description. My friend, Dr. Alexa Altman, I wrote, she even wrote a little blurb for my book, Traumatized, but she shared how she gave the analogy of you're standing on a beach and your feet are at the edge of the water. And a big T trauma is this huge wave that comes out gets you and pulls you out into the ocean and you develop PTSD and you're overwhelmed by it, right? That's one version. Another version are a bunch of little waves. If you've ever been to the beach, you know the waves that hit you like at the knee. You can kind of like, oh, you try to get your footing and then maybe you pull your foot out because you can get, as the waves roll, your feet kind of sink into the sand. And as you try to step to regain balance, it hits you again and your foot isn't even as stable into the sand as it was before. So then you're off kilter even more and then another wave and another wave. And those are all of those small events that happened. Those times when you were crying and a parent couldn't console you or wasn't there to console you. This neglect that we experienced maybe meant that when we felt bad about a test or were worried about something, a parent just wasn't there or told us to get over it, right? Each of those like experiences, which are probably in the thousands, are like these waves that hit us and hit us and hit us, and then we get pulled out to sea and develop PTSD. So it, again, it's not necessarily about safety, but I would argue we could even say, what if you feared for the emotional safety of yourself, right? That this is going to be wounding to me. I'm scared to cry because my mom's going to tell me I'm overreacting. I'm scared to express discontent because my dad's going to tell me to be quiet. We could argue, there could be an argument made easily about fearing for our emotional safety. When we think of safety, we often think just physical, but emotional safety is important and vital just the same. And so I really believe that what you have is complex PTSD and I would diagnose it anyways. I think that any clinician who is what I would call trauma-informed, meaning they understand PTSD and trauma. They understand complex PTSD, even though it's not in the DSM. I think it is in the ICD-11, but I might be wrong. They get it and they would diagnose it anyways because you meet all the criteria except for that one. But there's an argument to be made that you also did experience that. It just might look a little different because you're different because every person is unique and every experience is unique. And so those are just my thoughts. And I don't believe that they would overlook diagnosing you with PTSD just because of that. That, that That's my belief. Um, because like I said, I have tons of patients who have that exact scenario. And yes, you can be diagnosed with experience and um, having quote unquote only experienced emotional neglect. That's a biggie. I mean, I have a, a video about emotionally absent mother and emotionally unavailable father. Those are still years later, 
some of my most popular videos being watched over and over and over. So know that you're not alone and that it can get better. And I also recommend some books. Um, I think it's called The Emotionally Unavailable Mother and the or Emotionally Absent Mother by, I think her name is Lori. You can go to my Amazon shop. It's amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. And there's also a book in there about the unavailable father. Those are both great books to work on in therapy or by ourselves to help you understand what you're going through and offer yourself some healing and support for it. Okay. I hope that helps. And I hope that makes sense. I feel like I kind of got off on a tangent. Let's move on to question number six. This question says, hey, Katie, as a therapist yourself, how do you manage to trust other therapists? I love this question. And what do you do if you feel like you quote unquote know better? Would would you or would handle things differently? Gotcha. I'm currently in training, but I'm also in therapy myself. And for some reason, I just can't trust her. Is it because I don't want to give up control and take up the role of the patient? Interesting. Or is it because I'm specializing in what I'm dealing with myself? Also very interesting. I've had very bad experiences with other clinicians before, so I'm used to being very critical there. How do you draw the line between knowing better and sabotaging your own progress because of trust issues? This is great. Okay, quite a few things. Um, First, I'll talk personally. I don't have an issue trusting other therapists because once I've decided I'm going to keep seeing them, which can take me a couple of sessions, then I'm just all in. And I personally have not had a shitty experience with a therapist knock on wood. I'm, you know, starting new therapy now. So let's hope that doesn't happen. But I currently haven't had a bad experience. And I also know and would not hesitate if confidentiality was broken to fucking file a claim and take their license. We have rights as patients. As a therapist, I know that better than anybody, right? We know all the rules and the laws. And I have no problem being pushy. And I don't mean being pushy as in like being a brat or being rude. I mean, saying to them like, that's not appropriate. I'm going to have to file a, you know, I would say that. Or if they were not offering me something that I wanted, I wouldn't have a tough time. I don't know why my people pleasing behavior does not exist here. I think because I, maybe because it's like I'm paying for support and I expect to get it because I I offer that to people. I expect, you know, I expect the same. But I would say something like, I need more homework from you or, hey, you know, that didn't work. I couldn't do it. Like I just would give feedback easily and readily. And so I don't really have trouble because I know the rules and I know that it's safe and okay. But again, I have not had a personal bad experience. And I also, I trust my gut when I meet people in life or in there as a therapist. Like when I meet other people, I'm pretty good at judging whether or not they're going to be a good person. Obviously it's not perfect. Like I've had some people I've like become friends with and then been like, holy fuck, this is crazy. But it usually works itself out rather quickly. So I trust that gut of mine. Um, and so, so that answers that then. And what do I do if I feel like I know better? I mention something. I say, Hey, you know, in my training, we talked about X, Y, or Z. Do you think that would fit for me? I have to pose it as a question because here's the thing I want you to remember. You can't therapize yourself. I said it. You can't. I know that you think you can, but you're too close. Because the thing that makes therapy beautiful is the fact that they don't know. They're removed, right? If you know too much, it can get too complicated. That's why when you're, when we're struggling as people to make tough, tough decisions, maybe end relationships, maybe start relationships, take an opportunity in our life. We're so close to it. We can play out a zillion different ways. Having someone who has an outside perspective and can see the bigger picture is incredibly helpful and something that we cannot offer to ourselves. Also, we're too emotionally invested in our own life. We can't see clearly. We're not in wise mind. We're in emotion mind. I know you'd like to think you're in wise mind, but you're more in, I know better. I'm protecting myself. I'm puffer fishing, aka I'm in emotion mind because that defense mechanism of yours tells me that you're not in that therapeutic state. And you shouldn't be. You're the patient. And I think it's sometimes difficult for us to let go of the reins and allow someone else to help us. But I cannot tell you how life-changing it is and also for the longevity of our career because I've had tons of friends and colleagues of mine who started out as a therapist, social worker, psychologist, never got their own help. 
could not sustain. The burnout is intense. Being a caretaker for people is a lot. And being an emotional caretaker is even more. So you're going to have to figure out how to let this go. And you might even find some relief or some assistance in talking with your therapist about this that you have a hard time trusting because of X, Y, or Z, and you have a hard time letting go of the reins and allowing them to do their job. You find yourself wanting to be the therapist. But again, I have to tell you, you cannot be a therapist to yourself, okay? That'd be like a surgeon thinking he can like do surgery on himself. You, you can't. Um, okay, then I want you to check your facts because you say, for some reason, I can't trust her. Are there reasons? If there are, we should know them. Or is this a defense mechanism based on an old experience? And if so, we should talk about it with our new therapist about what happened. Um, and it can be tricky when we're specializing in what we're dealing with ourselves. I don't always love that. Like when it came to eating disorders, for instance, there was a rule at the place I worked at that you could not work at that clinic if you hadn't been recovered yourself for at least three years. Now, do I think there should be like this age? No, I don't think we need to put like this number, like three years. But I do know that it can be hard for us to have healthy boundaries when that is happening. When we're treating patients who struggle with we what we struggle with, we can overshare, we can make assumptions on based on our own experience. And it's all done because we want to help, right? There's no malicious intent here, but I just want you to be very careful about that. I am always a little resist, like, I, I just am always have my guard up a little bit and like, uh, da, da, da. I'm resistant to people wanting to specialize in what they themselves struggle with. I think it, it makes the boundaries really hard and boundaries are already kind of difficult. So just keep that in mind. I'm not saying you can't, I have plenty of colleagues who do. I just, I myself am concerned. Um, the last part of the question, how do you draw the line between knowing better and sabotaging your own progress because of trust issues? I think it, for me, it would be checking in on whether, whether I'm actually acting as the patient or am I trying to act as a therapist? Check in with yourself. If you, I'm not saying this is what you have to do, but I'm just going to speak for myself. If I'm not crying and rambling and trying to put together things and it doesn't make sense and, uh, you know, doing that kind of expression in my therapy session, then I'm the therapist because therapist Katie doesn't cry. Therapist Katie doesn't get emotional. I hold it, hold the space for my patients, leave pauses. I'm okay with the, the you know, that silent or the, the quiet in between. So people can think about things. Everybody hates it, but it's kind of important because in life we feel like the need to fill the space and leaving that space can sometimes allow for revelations or deeper understandings. Therapist Katie does that. Patient Katie does not. She cries. She talks a lot. She hates the the quiet and the discomfort. She needs like 12,000 tissues. It's just a disaster. And it should be. That's what I'm there for. I'm there to throw everything out and help them help have them help me put it back together. And you know you, and I have a feeling that you hide in the knowing better and the being the professional. And in your own therapy, that's only going to hold you back. Like you said, you're sabotaging. I think logic is usually your go-to self like or defense mechanism is like, I can logic my way out of this. Just acknowledge it and bring it up with your therapist because there's a reason you're getting protective. You've been hurt before in therapy. We need to talk about that. We need to process that so that then you can move forward. Okay. Let's move on to question seven. This says, hey, Katie. So I've had the same therapist for about six years, but recently I've started to consider looking for a new one. Not because of anything that went wrong. I just think that it's time for a change and having a new therapist might help me grow more. I agree. However, my current therapist and I are very close. I know for a fact that we uh, don't have great boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea how I would handle telling her that I want to find someone new. It kind of feels like a breakup in some ways. LOL. Any advice on how to bring this up and or how to deal with the grief of a relationship ending? Also, I do have BPD, BPD traits, if that gives any insight into how attached I've become over time. Thank you so much. Okay. <clears throat> a couple of things. I think you're right, especially if you don't have great boundaries. If you have some BPD tendencies, this is going to be really important for you. It's going to be a great exercise and incredibly healing. I'm really proud of you. Okay. 
But let your therapist know, you're going to have to practice. First of all, you have to write down some of the things you you think about, the, the, the reasons that you want to find someone new. I have some ideas and I'll maybe get you started, but obviously take it with a grain of salt. If you like it, put it in. If you don't, do it in your own words, right? But I would say something to the effect of, you know, we've been working together for six years and I've come a really long way. I think that in order for me to take the next step, I'm going to have to see someone who specializes in attachment or BPD, or I feel like I need a switch up so that I can be pushed that extra bit. Something like that. Or, you know, we've done so much work together. It's kind of like the hug and roll, right? I appreciate you so much in our relationship and we've done so much great work together. However, I feel like I need to see someone different in order to continue to be challenged. It's almost like a relay race in therapy. And if your therapist is good at their jobs, which I'm assuming that they are, they're not going to take it personal. This is more for you. This is like good practice for you because of the BPD traits and the attachment that you feel. It's going to be such a good, difficult, but such good practice for life, for healthy ebbs and flows of relationships and relationships starting and relationships ending and being okay. And so write down some of the thoughts that you have. Remember, whenever we, you can dear man this if you want to use like an actual DBT tool. I don't think we need that here. Um, but I think it could help for you just to do it for practice. If you struggle, um, I have it written out. I think dear man is in, is it in my traumatized book? You can just Google what is dear man DBT and I'll break it down for you. Um, anyways, you could do that, but I think something that might be easier is keeping it again to three to five bullet points of what points you need to get across. Keep them short to the point. Hence, I'm saying point a lot, sorry. But the those bullets would say something like, I really appreciate all the work we've done. We've made so much progress. At this point, I need to see someone else to help push me to make these additional changes. And I don't know if that's what you're asking, but then asking them for something. I would love to get some referrals from you and or... I would love to start, you know, weaning our sessions down little by little as I try to find or, you know, as I transition over to that new therapist, right? We can, you don't have to, it's not cold turkey. And that will be important for you not to do is to not do this splitting and pretend that she's all terrible. I don't know if that's part of your BPD traits, but just bringing that up. I don't want you to set her up to upset you so that then you can trash her again, splitting black and white. I want you to be aware of that. I want you to nicely, gradually stop seeing her over the course of, you know, a couple of months, maybe three months or so. We start winding it down as we wind up with the other um, and allowing yourself to feel, that's why we're we're weaning slow because I don't want you to pick a fight. That allows for that grief that you're talking about and that will allow you time with her because she's going to be grieving too and that's okay. It'll be a great healthy reparative experience for you versus maybe what the urge is is to like, impulsive, shut it down, all or nothing. Allowing yourself to go through all the work you've done together, all the things you've accomplished, to feel sad about it, to miss it, talk about missing each other. You know, maybe if you're going like a couple of weeks with it between sessions with her, you're like, I missed seeing you and that was hard, but I think I'll be okay. You know, I want to give yourself time. That's why we're kind of like titrating down slowly and allow yourself to process it with her. And I think that that will really be key. And that can ensure that we don't maybe engage in some of those old unhealthy patterns or do anything that, I don't know, that can make it harder for us moving forward. I want this to be healthy, reparative, and maybe one of the first times you've successfully, without picking a fight, ended a relationship right? Because therapy also is never an end. It's always, well, I guess sometimes it is like I had a patient threaten me and I was like, I can't see you again, but that's the only time. Other than that, it's almost like a semicolon or an asterisk or a dot, 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 right? It's just, uh, you could always come back. Nothing bad happened. You feel like you need a little more support, but you might want to check in with her every other month. I don't know. There's nothing wrong with that. What does it look like for you? Talk this out with her. But again, do the bullet points. Practice saying it out loud first. Um, pay attention to your splitting or potential urges to be impulsive or, you know, end it kind of thing. Because sometimes we can think that's easier. Spoilers, it's not for anybody. Um, and see, you know, how we can kind of titrate this down slowly and healthfully. You got this. I'm so proud of you for even 
admitting and acknowledging that this is what you need. That's so big, especially with BPD traits. That's so huge. So yay, keep me posted. Okay, let's move on to question number eight. This question says, Katie, what is the role of a loved one, parent, spouse, sibling, or child in the treatment of their mental health? Sometimes I feel the therapists of loved ones are missing a major issue. And I wonder what, if anything, is appropriate to do? Or am I stepping out of bounds with wanting to do something? Thanks for all that you do. Now, I will always remember, and I don't know why, if it's from my licensing exam and I'm like, you know, I was so overwhelmed by it that it's like burned in my brain or if this was in my law and ethics course, but as a parent, loved one, spouse, child, whatever, in the treatment of someone else, like let's say my role in Sean's therapy, there is no role. My only role is to support. If he wants me to come into a session, I will, and I'll participate and I will be loving and supportive and do the homework we're supposed to do. That's it. I can ask how a session went and what I can do to help. That's it. There was this law and ethics or it's a question or part of a test, something I remember where it talked about a spouse of a person that the therapist was seeing. You're the therapist. You're like, you're seeing this. I think it was a woman and she's 36 and her husband of five years, you know, is coming in. Da, da, da. He tries to give you a gift. There's multiple questions within this. He tries to give you a gift. You can't accept it unless it's like a baked good or like a card. Can't accept it. He calls and wants to know how things are going. You can't return the call. You can't confirm or deny you're even seeing his wife. Um, He tries to show up at the office to see you. You can't see him. Those were all the answers. You, You can't. And I will be honest with you. I know it sucks because you probably have information or um, things that you would like to see done. But even as a therapist, and my mom's been in therapy, Sean's been in therapy, my fam, everybody, my friends, people have been in therapy around me, which is wonderful. And there are always things that I wish their therapist was doing. I'm like, God damn, why didn't you, you know, one of my friends really struggles with like conflict and stuff with her husband. And I was like, man, they really need to give her these tools. And it was really frustrating me. But my role, kind of going back to that that question of, uh, what was it, two or three questions back about being a therapist or being the patient, are you being the therapist or are you being the friend or the spouse or the sibling? Like my role in that is not as a therapist. They, sure, they can ask me like, hey, Katie, if you were seeing someone like this, what would you do? I can offer that knowing that it's just not the same and that's not my role. So the answer is yes, you're stepping out of bounds. Everybody wants to do that. It's not just you. I even feel that way. But unfortunately, when they go to get help, All you can do is ask them how it went and support positive change or, you know, help with the different behaviors and work with them. That's all you can do. I know it sucks. I feel it too. It feels like your hands are tied behind your back and you're like, but God, if they just only knew this, but you also have to consider, and I tell myself this all the time when I thought had thoughts where I'm like, why didn't they do this? I don't know the full story because I'm not their therapist right? I'm not the one talking to them while they spill their guts. I can think that they've spilled their guts to me because it's, you know, my husband or my best friend. It's different. We all know that, right? You and I know how different therapy is versus friendships and family. It's different. And so I always tell myself, I don't know what's going on. I don't know the full story and it's not my role. And yes, it still sucks. (laughs) Okay. Moving on to our final question, question number nine says, hi, Katie, how did you balance having a relationship now or how do you, oh no, how did you, a relationship now with a parent who was abusive growing up? I believe my dad's intentions were never bad, but he is still very harmful and contributed to my complex PTSD. He has gotten slightly better as I have grown up, but I have a hard time forgiving him and not being resentful. Do I have a right to be angry and keep my distance or should I try to mend the relationship and forgive him? Man, what a good question. And there's, I've gotten a lot of heat online recently about how it's not culturally sensitive. If that's how you feel, then you, you know, if you were my patient, I would know that we would talk about it. We would figure it out. But I just give advice based on my experience and assuming that the person's similar to me. And if that offends someone, I apologize. That's never my goal. 
the truth about, and I know this is hard for people to hear, the truth about abusive relationships, especially with friends and family, well, family and parents, is that you get to decide as the adult, once you've grown up, right, you don't live at the house anymore, you have your own life, you get to decide what kind of relationship you want to have with them. I know there's all this like guilt and shame around like, oh, but they're your family. You have to forgive them. You need to get along, blah, 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 blah. You only get one set of parents or you only get one, you know, one brother or grandparents or whoever the fuck it is in your family. You only get time's wasting, you know, life's too short to be angry. If there was abuse that happened and you're struggling and it's hard to see them and it's super triggering and it's detrimental for you to be around them, you have free reign to negotiate that with yourself for what's best. Does that mean you have to cut them out? No, but it could. Does that mean that you have to spend all your time with them and just try to figure it out that way? No, but if you think that's best, you could. I want you to feel free to do what's best for you. Now, again, that's where people are like, Katie, that's not culturally sensitive. If that's not how things operate in your family, then find a way that works better for you, that feels more in tune. But again, you have to put your own mental health first. I would never want to send any patient, regardless of background or anything, into a situation that's going to be re-traumatizing, potentially cause a flashback or a panic attack and be, or dissociation, something that's going to be overwhelming. I would never want to send them into that, period. And if they felt like they had to, like I had a patient um, a couple of years back who had to go, she wanted to go to a funeral of a family member because it was important for her to be there, but she knew she'd have to see her abuser who she hadn't seen in like 10 years. And we just prepared her with a ton of tools and resources. And she even brought a friend. You do what you can if you have to, but I just want you to know that you get to decide if what your father is able to give you, right? Because in relationships, we can both offer things, right? I can offer support and consistency and I can show up for them and I can be loving, compassionate, right? And they can offer whatever it is they can offer. And that, that's how relationships happen. In family, we have to sometimes take stock of what we want out of that relationship. Like, what am I expecting out of the, my relationship with my father? I would like, like in a perfect world, I would like all these things. Then what is it he's able to give me? You said he's slightly better. Okay, what does that look like? Be honest. What are the things he's able to give? You know that he's capable of doing. And then we have the opportunity to look at those things. Okay, this is what he's capable of. He's capable of uh, having a conversation with me for about 15 minutes. That's very light and easy. He's capable of me seeing him for like two hours, maybe once a month. He's capable of a phone call in between there maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, you know, but he's, you know, there's other things he's not capable of. So what is he capable of? And then we have to decide if what he's able to give us is enough. And it's hard. Nobody wants to have to make that decision. But unfortunately, when it comes to family, especially past abusers, we sometimes have to do that because otherwise we keep going back into this abusive relationship, getting harmed and harmed again and again. And it's almost like that old postal service song where it's like, your heart won't heal right if you keep tearing out the sutures. Like we won't be able to heal from this trauma if we keep engaging with it over and over and being traumatized again and again. Um, I've said in the past that we can't fully, well, we can't even begin to process our trauma if we're currently being traumatized. And so give yourself an opportunity to assess what it is you would want from your dad. What is it that he's able or capable of giving and are you okay with that? And if you're okay with this, maybe minimal relationship, right? Because usually they're not capable of giving us a full relationship. If you're okay with what he's able to give, how do we engage with that in a way that isn't harmful to us? Does that mean we have a call once a month and we see him twice a year? Does that mean we don't see him and we maybe talk on the phone once a year, you know, or do we see him every week or what is it like? Uh, consider your options because you have them. And I know people will say, well, it's not culturally sensitive or blah, blah, blah. Then you do what's best for you. But my advice is will stay the same, that I don't want you going into a situation that's going to continually traumatize and harm you. I want you to feel okay. I want the relationship to at least be neutral, if not helpful and supportive and wonderful. And so we're going to have to find a way 
to make that happen. And forgiving him and not being resentful, the forgiveness comes on your part. Forgiveness, remember, is not condoning behavior. Forgiveness isn't acceptance. Forgiveness is letting yourself off the hook of that anger and that frustration and that hate that we can feel. We're forgiving them for the past because we can't change it. It doesn't mean we condone it for the future and we would allow it to happen again. So just remember that. I have a video about it. I think it's called Forgiveness Versus Acceptance. You can look it up. Um, Yeah, take your time. It's hard. But you do have a right to be angry and keep your distance. You have a right. You, we all have choices. These choices just happen to be more difficult and we can feel, we can want to judge ourselves about it. So give yourself the time to think it through and figure out what's right for you. And also know that even when you figure this out, it can change. So maybe your dad continues to get better and the relationship was very minimal. You're like, I can only talk to him like every month. And even then it's like five minutes. I'm like, I got to go. Maybe he improves himself, right? People can get better. I make a living believing that can happen then maybe that means, oh, I talk to him every other week, or maybe I want to see him. And it could improve with time, or it could get worse with time. You have every right to change and shift as you see fit for your own health and safety. Okay? Thank you all so much for listening and watching. Please share this podcast, let people know about it. And um, I ask for the questions on Sundays over on the YouTube channel. So if you just get onto YouTube and put in Ask Katie Anything, you'll find the podcast. And on the community tab on Sundays, I ask for your questions pop them in there. I try to get through as many of them as I can. I love you all. Have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time. Bye.